do we have the next set of slides up, please, at the back? Thanks. Well, we're doing well. We're keeping awake and alert, it looks like. Um, as actuaries, we do pride ourselves on being open-minded individuals and uh, embracing diversity in all its forms. In fact, uh, sometimes the more diverse the other party, the greater the value there is to be created out of said embracing. Uh, and so in keeping with that theme, our next session will be presented by um, accountants. Okay, old joke. Um, so the two guys that are up next are Mark Anley and uh, Wayne Savage. I'll just quickly introduce their bios and then let them have the floor. Mark is a CA, a partner in our risk advisory team at Deloitte in South Africa. Uh, he has 24 years of working experience uh, in professional services at various firms that shall remain, remain nameless and Deloitte in South Africa, uh, London, Edinburgh, and across Europe. Uh, Mark's area of expertise is in financial risk services and regulatory compliance, where he has worked with a large range of clients in retail and commercial banking, asset management, and insurance. And a significant excuse me, amount of Mark's focus recently has been on financial crime uh, regulation, supporting European and South African banks with their remediation projects, following large regulatory fines. I'm sure there's some interesting anecdotes there. Uh, and agreed remedial actions. Mark and his AML team have been engaged by all the big four South African banks of the past three years, assisting them with their Saab remediation projects. So I think we're going to have some interesting discussions from Mark. Um, on the other hand, Wayne, well, on the same hand, I guess, Wayne is a partner in the Capital Markets Group at Deloitte, um, focusing on regulatory risk and capital management frameworks. He has 21 years' experience in the, in the uh, financial services sector and has worked across banking, risk, insurance, and investment management. A significant amount of Wayne's time currently or recently has been on regulatory reform, supporting global and South African banks and insurers with their Solvency II and Basel programs. I'm sure many of you have worked with Wayne, uh, had the pleasure. He has also assisted both regulators and financial institutions in addressing the changes proposed within the market infrastructure reforms, i.e. Uh, Twin Peaks supervision and financial stability reforms. So um, we look forward to hearing and learning uh, on this front from your experience in the banking sector. Wayne, please take the seat. Thanks, Carl. So I'm assuming this is the slide changer. Okay, there it is. Um, thank you. So, as Carl said, um, we're going to focus on two key areas. The first being Twin Peaks and what does life under Twin Peaks look like? And then Mark's going to focus on financial crime. And um, he has indicated that he's got a couple of war stories that he'd like to relay. So, I'll spend less time on the, the less interesting stuff regarding Twin Peaks that I think you're probably familiar with. Um, in terms of looking at the as-is landscape, you're all familiar with how the, the regulators and supervisors currently um, look at both banking and insurance regulation and I think it's very much banking regulation looked at both in terms of prudential and conduct by the Saab and all non-banking looked at by the FSB. With regards to the Twin Peaks reform, it's really a move towards establishing two separate peaks, as the name itself says, with a conduct authority and a prudential authority. Quite interesting under this is the fact that for your, your non-banking, your AML inspectorate will actually move into the Prudential Authority being the Saab. 
Uh, I think one of the other interesting aspects is also with regards to the, the macro stability, which is perhaps a, a new introduction under Twin Peaks, uh, which will sit within the Saab, uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Committee, and I'll speak to some of the developments with regards to macro uh, regu regulation that we've seen develop globally as well as within the local domain. Um, I think other areas to ask over here that we see in South Africa, perhaps where the peaks haven't moved, is with regards to the Competition Authority and the National Credit Regulator. Now, in the UK, that has actually moved across uh, into the actual Conduct Authority. Uh, I think we, we're likely to see that move within the next two to three years, such that there's more efficiency within the, the supervisory uh, ambits of our regulators. So how is this taking place? At what, at what pace? and what has driven this. So you're probably familiar with the Financial Sector Regulator Bill, um, which has been out for public comment, I think, since 2012. It's largely driving um, the establishment of these peaks by September this year, establishing the structures and establishing the roles and the responsibilities and the mandates of the respective regulators. What we anticipate to happen after that is effectively the alignment of standards which these regulators will be proposing to ensure that the standards are aligned across the respective sectors. The driver on this has literally been the fact that there has not been consistent treatment across sectors, uh, either in terms of prudential or in terms of conduct type regulation. There's also been inefficiencies uh, when you've looked at levels of supervi uh, supervision that have taken place um, between the respective sectors. And I think Mark uh, when he speaks to the AML uh, and the fact that uh, you're likely to have the Saab uh, who were performing some of the FICA work within banks in the insurance sector, you know, I think we're likely to see a level of consistency being established in that going forward. I think some of the other areas have also been regarding complexity. Um, so those that are you know, within what could be deemed a financial conglomerate and how supervision takes place within that, I think just even if you're an insurance group, the level of complexity associated with how you go about managing your risks in the insurance group you know, is something that a lot of people are trying to get their minds around. Uh, within a financial conglomerate, when you start bringing in different sectors, be it banks, insurers, or investment managers, you know, it starts introducing complexity both within the institutions and at a regulatory level. Um, some of the developing regulations. So on the prudential side, um, we're starting to see on the basis of the 2008 financial crisis this concept of too big to fail starting to come to the fore. And if we think of the prudential or the macro regulation, this is where the Financial Stability Oversight Committee or the Saab macro regulator is going to come to the fore. Uh, global regulators have started designating what they call GSIFs, so globally significant, uh, significantly important financial institutions. In South Africa, we've had what they've called DCFEs appointed with largely banks. We're likely to see what they call domestically significant insurers being appointed, um, and they're forcing the development of things called recovery and resolution plans to generate the orderly recovery of an insurer or an insurance group um, and possible resolu uh, resolution when you reach a point of non-viability. It's to, it's to obviously impact on the systemic risk as, as little as possible. The other area of development which you would have seen is obviously the development of these market-wide stress tests. Um, in terms of understanding the systemic stresses that can be posed or the idiosyncratic stresses that can be imposed. And we're starting to see regulators rely on this a lot more to the degree that they're actually using that to determine the pillar two add-ons um, for some of the global organizations 
in terms of how that will be utilised. The likes of the European Banking Association um, and there's discussions as to whether IOPA will do this as well are developing independent models whereby the likes of banks and insurers can send data and they will run these stress tests independently and do a peer comparison on that basis. So stress testing is definitely something that they, they're looking to use on a macro basis. Then the, the other area, the final area of there is really around market infrastructure. And why is that important from an insurance perspective? I think if you think of insurers as being really uh, asset long, uh, either in their investment management spheres, insurers are playing a very big role in generating liquidity in things like the stock borrow, stock lend, the repo market. Uh, there's a big drive towards central clearing of these with regards to things like your central clearing counterparts, uh, the introductions of trade repositories and things like that. Um, and in South Africa, you've probably heard of you know, the discussions around the role that the JSE will play as a central clearinghouse with regards to things like OTC derivatives. There's a big push to understanding how uh, stock borrow, stock lend might be cleared or how straight might play a role with regards to the establishment of trade repositories. On a micro basis, I'm not going to spend too much time with regards to um, SAM or Solvency 2, other than to state that I think some of the areas of focus are coming out now around group and how group supervision will take place, as well as how some of the group standards will apply um, in terms of calculation of capital and consistency, so the deduction aggregation, uh, the full consolidation method, how will we treat uh, entities that are not South African entities or non-regulated entities. Also, some refinement around linked insurers and the governance requirements. Um, as well as things like some calibrations for niche players. Basel IV in the banking sector, you know, most people think, well, Basel III is Basel IV year already. Uh, I think a lot of challenges around the use of internal models versus standardized models that are standardized across the sector, uh, less reliance on internally calibrated. Um, on the conduct side, so on the conduct side, we've, we've seen a TCF um, has been around for quite some time uh, and we've seen different levels obviously of adoption in terms of where the insurers and the banks are with regards to this. I think we, we are definitely starting to see both globally and locally the, the management of outcomes. So um, I know Praveen will be speaking a little bit about big data and analytics. A lot of this is also focusing around things like customer complaints handling um, and the MI associated with that. So we're starting to see a lot more focus around data regarding that. Um, TCF obviously introduced the principles. We see the establishment of RDR, which is a, adopting a far more sort of stringent area around the rules. The FSB released the 55 RDR proposals at the end of 2014. We saw some um, clarification regarding this at the end of November and December 2015, and we anticipate to see this implemented in three tranches. So with the first tranche starting sort of towards the back end of 2016. Um, on the FIC side, um, I'm going to leave that to Mark to cover, other than maybe just to mention that the FIC bill is with Parliament and is anticipated to be adopted sort of post the financial sector regulatory bill, which as I mentioned earlier is going to be adopted in September of this year. In terms of some of the challenges, and I think this is where our, our regulators are, um, both our regulators and global regulators are, are grappling with some of the, the developments. So the first one is really just the standards that we see across things like banks and insurers and the lack of alignment. Um, you know, I, I can look at um, how banks account for insurance investments or large equity stakes versus how an insurer accounts for a large banking equity stake, 
and how that impacts on their capital requirements. And you can see massive inconsistencies. Uh, you can see holds of asset portfolios in an insurer or in a bank, and you can see massive inconsistencies on that, which obviously introduces the aspects of arbitrage for financial conglomerates. And obviously, these are things that don't you know, lead to different risk profiles in the sector. So regulators are trying to get their minds around how to, how to go about changing some of the standards. And as I said, that's likely to form part of phase two of Twin Peaks. Um, the actual ability to identify, monitor, and manage systemic risk across financial conglomerates. Uh, it's all good and well to say that you need to manage this in a financial conglomerate um, and then mention things like contagion and concentration risk. The ability to do that when you have minority shareholders to share information around risk um, where it can place you at a sort of a, an overly competitive position or being anti-competitive in some instances is a really difficult thing to address and I think regulators are just starting to realize the implications of this and my personal views are regulators are going to need to play a far more hands-on role in terms of their on-site supervision and the roles that they play. Uh, very slow moving pace around market infrastructure. I think that's one of the areas of concern um, in terms of having things like CCPs, central clearing exchanges in place to manage some of the reforms that the G20 is, is pushing for. Uh, as I think was mentioned earlier, uh, RDR on some of the investment products and the, the banishment of commission being paid uh, is likely to change the way in which the distribution channels work and some business models uh, across the insurance sector. Uh, and then I think one of the questions that we still have is, you know, there was discussions around deferral of commission on life products. The UK did not adopt this. It would be interesting to see where the South African industry um, emerges in this regard. On that, Mark. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be in Johannesburg on a Friday afternoon, particularly when you live in Cape Town. Um, what I want to cover with you this afternoon is a bit of a deep dive into the world of AML and financial crime more broadly. Um, as Wayne mentioned, under Twin Peaks, the supervision of AML and FIC will move across the Saab from the FSB. And uh, I'm going to take you through the experience of what the banks have been through over the last three or four years and also relate to some of my global experience, having worked in this area in Europe for about 10 years. Um, interestingly, in the UK, AML uh, regulation is actually covered by the Conduct Authority, not the Prudential Authority. So we have a slightly different model that's been applied in South Africa. But I'm just going to talk through, you know, why is this such a big topic at the moment? Um, as I say, give you some insights from the, the inspections at the banks, some lessons learned. Talk about some of the amendments to our FIC Act. Uh, our initial FIC Act came in, you know, over 12 years ago. And there's some substantial changes coming in terms of requirements. So I'll just highlight some of the key changes. Some of them are quite fundamental, and that's really to bring us in line with European and uh, international best practice around tackling money laundering and terrorist financing. And then just talk about the sexual, the risks and threats of this and what it means for our country, our economy, and for individual companies. And then finally, just some tips as to what you can do now to prepare. Hopefully you've all started preparing for a Saab inspection. If not, you better get started soon because it is going to be quite an interesting experience. So just some context around why this is such an important thing at the moment. So there's a lot of focus on financial crime, terrorism, an increase around transparency. Um, from FATF, 
the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global body tasked with combating money laundering and terrorist financing. All of the G20 meetings now increasingly focus on this, and it's always a topic that comes up. Um, the use of sanctions against regimes uh, have, has you know, been used quite extensively over the last 20 years. Iran, uh, even some, some countries in Africa, Cuba, and there's a whole range of measures currently against Russia, for example. And then, hot off the press, the, the data leaks, the Panama Papers, you know, there's a big focus on increasing transparency. So it's getting a lot of focus. From a South African point of view, we as a country got a visit from FATF in 2009. Uh, they came to, to look at us. And what FATF do is they go around the world and they assess how countries are combating money laundering and terrorist financing. And they write a report on how well countries are doing. And that gets published. Um, some countries have very bad ratings. They're blacklisted. And obviously then they're not that attractive in terms of destination for investment. But South Africa had a visit in 2009 by FATF, and we came out with a mixed report. They said we had, you know, good act in place, but it wasn't enforced. And so what the Saab did in response is they built up an inspectorate and have been going around um, inspecting for the last three and a half years all the banks, so all 34 banks or banking licenses have an inspection, and they, they've issued letters uh, to fix deficiencies at the banks. And I'll come on and, and talk a little bit around what those are. But what that resulted in is we've got now our Act being amended, we've got an inspectorate. So when we get our next visit as a, as a country, we should get quite a good rating in terms of the FATF rating. And that's very important because international investors, correspondent banks, rating agencies, look at that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the rating agencies also look at how we tackle money laundering and terrorist financing, which actually in Southern Africa is a big problem, where we're geographically located, um, and because it's an attractive place for criminals to come and operate, uh, there's actually a huge amount of crime that is happening here. So it is a very important. Another factor is de-risking, and this is an issue for Africa. So increasingly, as big global banks are getting fined billions and billions of dollars, they're saying we're not willing to take the risk anymore of operating in Africa and maybe getting fined. So certain banks have said they're not going to do business in Africa anymore because the risk is too high. Now that creates a problem because firstly you don't have access to correspondent banking and secondly um, you, you, know, you don't have the, the correspondents investing in the, in the countries and, and the continent. So this is quite an important issue for us to make sure that we clean up our act in Africa, in South Africa, in terms of how we tackle money laundering, because that should then support more inward investment. And there are examples of countries like Rwanda, who've really cleaned up their act and are attracting huge amount of investment because they have a zero tolerance for corruption. Um, so that's an important factor. Regulatory action has been huge fines internationally, and in a minute I'll put up a league table that you certainly don't want to be on. Uh, I keep track of all the international fines, and every other month I have to add another company with another billion dollar fine. So there's a lot of action internationally in South Africa. You're probably aware that our big four banks got fined a collective 125 million uh, rand for deficiencies about two years ago. Um, that was the first indication that the Saab really are looking at this. And, you know, they have said, they have hinted at the fact that if banks 
and also non-banks, if they don't address this, that the fines could get bigger in line with international standards. Um, and uh, I think the final point to note is that our SAAB has an obligation now to prepare what's called a national risk assessment. So they have to take all the information they gather from the police, from the FIC, from industry, and do an overall assessment for South Africa to say, as a country, where are we most at risk of you know, terrorism, money laundering, and other forms of financial crime? And that's a document that gets published annually. Now, one of the things about this area is it's very dynamic. You know, criminals change their behaviors all the time. If you close down a loophole in a certain place, they will go and move it somewhere else. And they have vast resources and are capable of moving, you know, quite quickly. In terms of what we mean by financial, and I also like to add in the word economic crime, um, everyone thinks it's predominantly money laundering. There's a vast array of areas that are impacted. It's not just money laundering. It's... Tax evasion, and you know, I think the Panama Papers leaks is, is going to expose some people. I mean, the thing about that is that not everyone's guilty, clearly, if your name is, 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 is mentioned in the Panama Papers, but it could indicate there is possible tax evasion. Insider trading, um, counter-proliferation financing, which is the financing of weapons, weapons of mass destruction, um, market abuse, that's a big area in, in the UK with LIBOR, FX, um, interest rate commodity rigging, and huge fines being levied in that area. Fraud, in your case, claims fraud, you know, is a big issue, internal fraud and external. Terrorist financing, um, obviously that's got a huge amount of focus, particularly after 9-11, as to how terrorists are, are finance their activities. And I've got a little case study later on just to demonstrate how terrorists actually use life products uh, to generate finance to further their terrorist activities. It's a live case from two years ago. Um, ID theft, impersonation fraud, cybercrime is a massive issue um, for banks and all financial service companies. Bribery, and the list goes on. Um, and I'll you know, talk a lot about this, and one of the things I often say to people that I work with is that when we organize our, our companies, we sort of structure around these boxes. So we'll have a money laundering team, we'll have a fraud team, we'll have a cyber team, um, and we have a bribing corruption team. And they don't necessarily all talk to each other. They're different departments. But actually, at the end of the day, criminals don't organize themselves like this. They just either launder their, their ill-gotten gains through the financial system, or they use the financial system to make money through cyber crime or hacking or tax. So, you know, we need to think and join the dots in terms of all the areas of financial crime, in terms of intelligence and systems to tackle this. Now, I mentioned this league table. I don't know if you can all see this at the back, but basically this is a, a log of all the big fines that have been levied globally. Um, topping the log with a whopping $9 billion fine just over a year ago is BNP Paribas um, for sanctions breaches. So what they did basically was they... Um, it did a number of things, but one of the main things they did was they helped Iran sell the oil on global markets. Iran was a sanctioned country, sanctioned by the U.S. Um, for various misdemeanors and, 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 and the, the nuclear threat. And so you can't deal with Iran, um, but BNP Paribas sought to help them and circumvent the controls around this so that they could sell the oil. Um, and the fine per transaction per breach is $1 million. So it's not a huge number of transactions. 
9,000 transactions that breached, and they landed that fine. And that's, many of the billion dollar fines are around that theme. Um, and, and so that's a big, been a big area of focus for the banks, is you know, breaching sanctions requirements and helping regimes. And ultimately what you're doing is you are inadvertently supporting terrorism um, because they are then able to sell their oil and use that to further potential terrorist activities. In the case of BMP, it became a diplomatic spat between uh, the presidents of France and the US, because the US levied a fine on a French bank, uh, and that size of fine, obviously, um, the French president thought he could um, get away with it, but it, he didn't, and, and that's what they got fined. There's a number of cases here. There's a number of repeat offenders, so you think that organizations would, le would learn from this, but they don't. And the list will continue uh, to grow um, because, you know, often um, banks take a, a risk decision that actually they will live with a fine. Um, interestingly, what's happening now is the focus on personal liability is changing. So you can find a bank, but until you start going after the individuals that are responsible, uh, that's when the, the, we think the change will happen. And our FIC Amendment Act, which I'll talk about in a minute, actually puts now personal uh, accountability on the board and the exec to deal with this, as opposed to the money laundering reporting officer. So that's been one of the key changes in order to get the right level of focus around this. In terms of lessons learned from the, the bank inspections, so this is a generic overview of basically how the inspections went. So typically an inspection for a big bank would be between eight and 10 people for about 10 weeks on site crawling all over your business. So quite different to what you can expect from the, the FSB. Um, they have a standard approach with that, which they've developed. Uh, they developed it by talking to colleagues internationally through their networks and getting best practice from around the world. And typically it covers a number of areas, so end-to-end. -end. They'll look at client files, they'll pick a sample across all your business, look at KYC. They will look at associated parties and the screening of those. So beneficiaries, trustees. Um, one of the big areas of concern is beneficial ownership. Um, and you know many companies will set up structures to conceal their illicit activities. So trustees, um, ultimate beneficial owners. One of the big areas of the Saab focus and the FIC amendment is to get to the warm body that controls these complex structures. Um, focus on politically exposed persons. Uh, that are higher risk because of their association and ability to commit bribing, corruption, money laundering. Another big area of focus. Um, interestingly, on, on the PEPs, our FIC Amendment Act introduces a new term which is quite unique to South Africa, which is called a PIP. So you've got politically exposed persons, but the new term is a prominent influential person. So it goes wider than um, PEPs, but it Someone like the chairman of FIFA, for example, is a prominent influential person that is more uh, susceptible to, to bribery and corruption. And some of you may have heard this joke before, but pips start from right at the top, the, the main number one pip, which is the, in the country, right down to people at a lower level, which I call the pip squeaks. So you basically got different levels of, of um, influence that you can exert, and you need to identify that and do due diligence on individuals around that to make sure that the dealings are appropriate. A lot of people think you shouldn't do business with a, a PEP or a PIP, but actually you can as long as you understand what they do 
and that you are happy that it is legitimate, not suspicious and unusual. Um, so often you hear companies say, we don't do with any PIPs, but actually that's the wrong re reply because some of their business could be quite lucrative as long as you can demonstrate that you understand what they're doing. Typically what happens after the visit, and you can see some of the other areas they look at, transaction monitoring, screening, the board and exco involvement, they'll go out and interview staff in the branches, unannounced. Um, so it is a quite an extensive um, you know, program of work they'll, they'll do. They'll present a consolidated report at the end. And then what we've generally seen is that banks then have put in place three, four year remediation programs to address the weaknesses. I think across the industry there are a number of weaknesses. So no one's come through clean. In fact, talking to the Saab, I think of the 34 inspections, there was no one that got a 100% clean scorecard. Everyone had some level of issue that they had to deal with. And ultimately, once we go through this process, we should actually be stronger and more robust in terms of knowing your clients, reporting suspicious activity, and I hope, you know, through that process, exposing more people that can then be caught and prosecuted. So I think that's the ultimate intent of having much more focus on this. Um, in terms of just running through some of the program issues, and I'll just touch on these very briefly because I want to get onto the case study a little bit later on. A um, couple of lessons. Firstly, position any program that you run strategically, not as a regulatory tick box pro program. Hearing the, the speakers on the panel earlier, um, a lot of this is around customer data and knowing your customers. And actually, you're going to be doing that for a number of reasons, for TCF, for RDR, for credit regulation if you have credit products, from a poppy perspective, from a factor perspective, and also because you want to know your customers and give them good service. So if you're going to be looking at customer data in terms of remediating KYC, use the opportunity to enhance your, your customer data and therefore perhaps uh, improve the customer journey. That's one thing that we've certainly noticed, and in fact something that I noticed the UK banks when I worked with them really embraced in terms of treat this as an investment in your customer data rather than a pure cost. Um, just some other lessons um, around this. The, the response from the market counterparts, if you don't have a good program or approach this, can be quite dramatic. And we have seen examples of correspondent banks pulling out of doing business with South African and African banks because they're not comfortable that they can articulate a good story around this. So if you put a good story together to say, you know, we take financial crime very seriously, it's one of our corporate values, this is what we do, and you have a short sort of presentation that explains how you tackle this, that's a very powerful thing to be able to present to correspondents, investors, um, rating agencies, and, you know, regulators, whoever you might deal with from, from abroad. And, and hopefully that will portray in good light and allow you to have a more fruitful business relationship. So that's just something that's worth considering in terms of any program that you put in place to address this. Um, in terms of the changes to the FIC Act, I'm just going to highlight a couple of ones. So I mentioned beneficial ownership, so really understanding who is behind corporate vehicles or trusts, who, who, who controls the ultimate vehicle. Often complex structures will be put in place to conceal illicit activity. Um, and I've, the point I make about PEPs is you get two kinds of PEPs. You have those PEPs that want to be known to be important. So they'll come into a bank, the private bank, and say, I'm a PEP, you know, you need to treat me like God and, 
Um, I'm very important. Make sure you give me good service. And then you've got the peps that don't want to be known. So those are the guys that have you know, got involved in maybe procuring energy or something, and they get quite large kickbacks, and that kickback goes into companies, and they want to try and conceal the ultimate um, ownership of that. So they put in place structures to conceal that. Those are the ones that I know the Saab are certainly after. And um, there was an interesting case in, um, in Africa where one of the uh, banks got fined 32 million pounds for engaging with PEP around procuring uh, a $600 million facility to build infrastructure. The company was put in place to facilitate the transaction, 1%, $6 million, uh, ended up in this company as a facilitation company, but it was controlled by two PEPs, um, and they got caught, and they got fined 32 million. So that, that's a case of where you know this is happening. And my general feeling is that I think this is happening quite a lot in Africa, so it is a high area of focus. Uh, just in terms of the risk-based approach, so this is very important in the change. So in the past, we've had a bit of a one-size-fits-all tick box approach to tackling money laundering and terrorist financing. <clears throat> in the new world, you'll be able to apply a risk-based approach. So what that means is you need to identify in your company where you're most at risk or vulnerable in terms of money laundering, terrorist financing, financial crime, and then put in place measures to um, combat that. So that might, you might conclude that for 95% of your business, very low risk business, you can put in place very basic measures. Whereas if you have a part of your business, maybe you know, private wealth trusts, high net worth individuals, dealing with foreigners, um, potentially cash rich businesses, that's much higher risk. And therefore you put in place commensurate um, controls to deal with that. This is a big change and really brings us in line with the international approach. And what you're basically saying is for your medium and low risk customers, you do very little due diligence. But for your high-risk customers, which might be only a handful, you do enhanced due diligence. So you go and do adverse media check. You scrutinize the transaction activity. And you just maybe go and visit them and just get comfortable that there's no unusual or suspicious activity going on that you need to report. The red highlighted one for me is very important is around the change in accountability to senior management as opposed to the Section 43B <coughs> officer. Excuse me. Okay, so just um, moving on. What are the threats? And I don't know if you can all see this at the back, but just to highlight the threats. So this is um, a diagram of uh, mafia-linked property in South Africa. So about a year and a half ago, one of the mafia kingpin that actually had an association with South Africa was arrested. Uh, he was arrested in Italy, actually. Um, and typically the, the kingpins of the mafia don't talk when they get arrested. They would, can get tortured, but they won't talk. But this guy actually did, and he has revealed the extent of mafia-linked activity <clears throat> going on in Southern Africa. And when you look on here, it's quite vast, spanning hotels, nightclubs, diamond trading, farms, ostrich farms, um, flats, all over the place. Now, ultimately, this, these assets have been acquired through um, drug sales, predominantly, and it's proceeds of crime. So you put this list up and you say to a bank, uh, do you, are these, any of these your customers? And they'll have, they won't know. 
So the point is some of these are very legitimate businesses but have been funded with illicit activity. <clears throat> so this is, you know, it's a real threat. It's a real threat in, in the people that we deal with and it's a threat to, to our, industry, our economies. And Tarbin Berkey often makes the, the point, and, and he's really big on this, that you know, 3 to 4% of the GDP of Africa gets lost to illicit financing. Now, if you consider that you take 4% of Africa's GDP that gets lost to illicit financing activities, and you reinvest that in schools, infrastructure, social upliftment, what contribution that will make to our economy. And that's why he's really focused on this, and he's creating a... Africa-wide, he wants to create an Africa-wide sort of intelligence um, sharing mechanism to share intelligence on, on individuals and hopefully allow more people to be captured. <clears throat> so I've got a quick case study because I've got uh, the five-minute warning from, from our MC. So this is one that demonstrates how insurance can be used um, to commit financial crime. So I put this together from a typology. So one thing that happens internationally is when there are cases that, where people get caught, they convert them into case studies so that you can learn from them. In this case, the leader of a ter terrorist organization, Country A, he had a volunteer that decided and was willing to blow himself up as a suicide bomber. So there. So he, guy says, I'll blow myself up. I'm happy to do that. Um, we call him Mr. X. So the leader said, no, I'd, I'd rather you didn't do that. <laughs> We can, we can use you rather to go to country B. Uh, so this was two years ago. No, sorry, two and a half years ago. And uh, take out a, a life policy, which this guy did. Uh, took out a four, billion, a four um, million euro life policy. But, but Mr. Z was noted as the beneficiary. Then what happened um, is that the guy then died in a car accident. Um, they managed to get a fake death certificate uh, by bribing, and the proceeds were paid out and were remitted from country A back to country, back to country A from country B <clears throat> to further support terrorism activity. <clears throat> so what, what's happened in this case? You've got a number of things. You've got money laundering, you've got terrorist financing, you've got fraud, you've got bribery, you've got sanctions busting, and some of the risk things that are evident here is that large single policy, cross-border payment, and high-risk country, Afghanistan, was mentioned. But clearly there's a lot of risk here. So this is an example of how life industry was used uh, to commit terrorist activity. So you're not immune from this. One thing I must say is that compared to the banks, the risk is much lower generally because you don't have that transactional day-to-day banking, which money launderers generally want. But you do have products and services that are attractive. And also what we find is as you close the net, so as the scrutiny on the banks has been significant <clears throat> and banks improve their controls and the questions they ask customers, those criminals then migrate to other less controlled areas and industries. And that, unfortunately, in some cases means life and asset management and non-banking. So the risk... You know, as I said earlier, it moves. So <clears throat> I also like to put up some pictures to demonstrate this because it is, you know, it's, a, it's a something that impacts all of us. Um, just to talk about one or two of these pictures, obviously the top left is pretty obvious, terrorist attack in New York. <clears throat> the thing about that attack was that 
the individuals that perpetrated that and, and, the, and knew that their activities would have massive impact on financial markets and were able to profit from that by trading ahead in airline stocks and certain indices which they knew would be dramatically changed and that, that's been proven. Rhino Poaching, uh, one of our banks actually, through reporting suspicious activity at a branch in Nelspreit, was able to catch uh, some rhino poachers who were depositing cash after you know, selling uh, ill-gotten rhino horns. Uh, that map there of Africa, of the world rather, um, that is um, a map of human trafficking risk. And as you can see, Africa's quite bright red. So as a continent, we have massive human trafficking risk, predominantly North Africa, but also in South Africa, the biggest risk is drug trafficking from South Africa to Thailand, uh, where individuals, uh, it's really human trafficking, but it's people that are taking drugs to Thailand. We have about 5,000 South Africans locked up in Thai prisons that have been caught carrying um, drugs from South Africa. Um, and finally, my favorite person is this chap here. He looks like a nice cuddly grandfather. That's Bernie Madoff, who caused a lot of pain for a lot of people and resulted in J.P. Morgan getting fined uh, because they didn't screw, they, he used J.P. Morgan predominantly as, as to clear a lot of his business and they didn't have proper controls in place to monitor the unusual activity which was going through those accounts and you know he's caused a lot of pain an example of sort of the what can, you know the Ponzi schemes how significant they can be and the impact they can have. Just finally before we go to questions what can you do now to mitigate this so the first thing I think you can do is just look at your business and say, as a business, where are we most at risk? You know, <clears throat> in terms of where you operate, your geographies, how you engage with clients, client types you have, do you have trusts, do you have complex corporate structures, or is it more pure retail? Um, what products and services do you offer? Vast number of products and services you offer are not very attractive to money launderers because they're 15 years, you've got to die before you can you know, claim on them, for example. Others are quite attractive, so you need to look at that and look at how you engage with your clients. Is it face-to-face -face or not? <coughs> Do a gap analysis against um, a framework to see how you stack up. Um, have a program, a rolling program. I'm rushing because I'm about to uh, lose my voice altogether. <coughs> and training and awareness is very important. So one of the things the regulator will look at is how do you get awareness in your organization, right to the front level. And then produce MI that tells you where you might be vulnerable. KRIs that can tell you where you're deteriorating. How many PEPs do you have? How many breaches do you have? And so you can take some action. And on that note, I think our time's up and we're going to have some Q&A. We can allow time for one question. If there is someone that has a, a question that they would like to put to Two gentlemen. Anyone? Is that a raised hand? No. It's like in an in an auction. You don't dare scratch your nose because you'll have a mic shoved at you. <laughs> All right. Um, in that case, let's let's uh, not keep you from your tea. Um, just to say, Mark Wayne, thank you very much uh, for your input and your insights and your experience. Um, and as non-members of the Actuarial Society, we have a small token of our appreciation for you, if you wouldn't mind giving them a hand.
All right. Um, now for the good news. Uh, tea will be served. Uh, we will be back in this room at 3.30 sharp. Please be here slightly in advance so we can get a prompt start. Thank you very much.